0: I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good <laughs> question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian, Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation.
2: this is Gretchen Whitmer and you're listening to the Tom Sumner program
3: and welcome back everybody Uh, I'm Tom Sumner and we're rolling into the second hour of our three-hour tour and my guest this hour was on the show uh, it's been a while now uh, talking about his uh, now award-winning book called The Patterning Instinct, but he has a new book. It's called The Web of Meaning, Integrating Science and Traditional Wisdom to Find Our Place in the Universe. He's been described as uh, one of the great thinkers of our time, <laughs> and uh, it's an honor to have him back. His uh, name is Jeremy Lent, and Jeremy joins me by phone. Hi, Jeremy. Welcome to the show. Hey, Tom. Thanks so much. I'm delighted to be here with you. Thank you. And I, you know, I have, I, I've was trying to think how we would uh how we would get rolling and 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 I guess I'll I'll start with we spoke for a minute or two before we went on the air and you said that you spent or you indicated it it sounded like you were indicating that you spent most of your quarantine time during the
1: pandemic Mm -hmm. writing this book. (laughs) <laughs> yes, well, well, I guess to be honest more like finishing the book cuz the um the the actual book took a few years to write and and uh you know get everything completed and stuff like that. And it's amazing how even after you think you finish finished the book, you go through months of, you know, editing and then months of proofreading and indexing and all this kind of stuff. Um it's a it's a long process, but the thing is like um I, um, I confess that I was relatively unscathed compared to so many people um, because, you know, quite honestly, I'm an introvert anyway. And I'm, so here I was in my little home, home office working away and did almost the same as I would have done if um, there had not been COVID. Um, but, uh, of course, just uh, feeling into how it's been affecting our whole, our whole nation and our world has been uh, has just as traumatic for me as everybody
3: well, it was funny, and, and I mentioned this to you uh, before we went on the air. I moved uh, my studio equipment home, planning to be somewhat unique and unusual a couple months before the pandemic hit. And then, <laughs> I, you know, I thought this was going to be so clever and you know, sort of noticeable that I was working from home, and then, mm-hmm. you know, a few weeks later, everybody's working from home. <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: You started a trend, didn't you?
3: Tom? Well, I don't know if I started a trend, but I, I certainly felt a lot less special when it became the norm. <laughs> um, but, but let me ask this, uh, and, and it doesn't surprise me that it took a while to put this book together. I mean, anything titled The Web of Meaning Integrating Science and Traditional Wisdom to Find Our Place in the Universe seems like it's uh, a, a pretty tall order, Jeremy. But let me, let me ask you this to get our conversation started. Do the disciplines of science and traditional wisdom search for the answers to the same questions?
1: Mm. Well, wow, what a, a great way to start <coughs> to uh, um, kick this off. That's a great question, because yes, ultimately, I think they do, because they ask questions about the the sort of, ultimately, what is this universe that we live in, and uh, what is the place of humans within this universe, and who, who are humans anyway? What are we relative to the rest of nature? And some of these biggest questions are exactly the kinds of questions that traditional wisdom asks and also the kinds of questions that science asks. The one difference that maybe we should add there, though, is that traditional wisdom um, practices all over the world also ask the question of how should I live? You know, um, how can humans really uh, achieve the best quality of life, and, and how morally should we act towards others around us and the rest of the world? Most of science, tries to stay away from that question as hard as possible. But recently, some um, elements of science have moved towards those kinds of questions, and that's one of the areas that I explore, actually, in the book, how um, certain uh, people in the forefront of science are beginning to ask that question, too.
3: Well, we see at least some evidence of that in in the research into uh, climate science. and and climate change, and and there are recommendations coming from the world of science about um, how we might live so as not to
1: do further harm. That's right. That's right. And, in fact, we see an interesting debate going on in the scientific community on just this issue about, like, moving from trying to describe what is to trying to um, make a call for what we should do. And, you know, for decades, many scientists felt their job was to describe what's going on, but then stop right there. And anybody who actually moved towards a more advocacy position was criticized, even within the scientific community. But then uh, people like Michael Mann and others uh, began to kind of break that um, kind of artificial Um, gap, if you will, started to just say, no, we need to do something about it. And increasingly, not just in climate, but also in areas um, like marine biology or biodiversity or anything to do with scientists who are looking at how our civilization is destroying so much of the richness of life. And people feel more and more compelled to move into an advocacy place because they're advocating not just for themselves, they're not just taking some parochial position, but they're advocating for the very uh, richness of life that they're studying. And some of them are just heartbroken by what they see going on.
3: Well, it, and to oversimplify it, uh, you know, the job of scientists are, is to look at, at what's happening to the planet and then discover it's bad. And, and now they're adding the element of don't do that. <laughs> right. Exactly. I mean, that's, a, that's certainly an oversimplification. But one can't help wondering, uh, you know, when when scientists, and, and we should really credit the, the people working in research on the uh, coronavirus 19 vaccine, um, when people develop something like a vaccine, it is with the intention
1: that people should take it. Yes, that's right. And there are so many scientists that uh, act in that way of really believing and, and feeling strongly that they, their job is to really act for the best interests of all of life. But then we also do have to recognize that um, when scientists uh, end up being part of a corporation and they develop a vaccine um, you know, as paid employees of the corporation, they are also to some degree... Um, you know, taking part in um, you know making the that corporation's shareholders wealthier, <laughs> and then you have all these kind of issues like the uh, patents. That's when know, it goes and, from good
3: advice to marketing. Mm,
1: right, exactly. And so, <laughs> and it's complex, you know. And it's not just a matter. Of, um, I mean, even though, of course, the pharmaceutical companies that have created these vaccines, I think, is one of the greatest triumphs of science in recent years and something to be celebrated but at the same time we have to ask ourselves uh what is underlying that and what are the moral implications of creating vaccine and then raking in billions of dollars in profits while you have um, really billions of people um, who don't even have access to these vaccines uh partly because of the lack of um you know wealth of the in, in the global south the countries unable to sort of, you know, bid high enough to get the vaccine to their populations.
3: And again, uh, looking back at the title of the book, The Web of Meaning, um, are you referring to the meaning of life or the meaning of everything?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, that's also a great question. It's a bit of a mystery about the title. What is the the web of meaning? And hopefully by the time somebody finishes the book, they can answer that pretty clearly. Um, well, it was really, um, uh, the, the, the title is really intended to give a sense of ultimately what the book is saying, which is that, you know, in our modern society, um, a lot of people feel a lack of meaning. Um, in fact, um, one could say that uh, much of the way society is structured and the way our consumerist messages are structured and media and everything else is the kind of, um, separate things out and break meaning away from everything. And ultimately what we're sort of told is, you know, because there's no meaning in anything, just the only thing to do is try to get rich and powerful as much as you can and, and, you know, screw everything else. Um, And science also traditionally, and and I should say not all science, but a particular um, important branch of science called reductionist science the same thing. They say basically, the more we know, well, this is in the words of a Nobel laureate physicist, um, Stephen Weinberg said, the more we know about the universe, the more pointless um, it becomes. And so it's a really uh, terrifying, if, if you will, way of thinking about life. And what the book begins to show um, through the pages is that actually, this is not, this is not what modern science is actually leading us to, and certainly not what all wisdom traditions around the world have told us. There's another way of looking at meaning, that meaning itself arises from our connectedness. And that's why it's called the web of meaning, because the web, basically, and it refers to the ways in which, actually, when we look at things from this uh, sense of connectedness, everything ultimately relates to everything else and that science can relate to spiritual meaning, and our individual identity can relate to the identity of all of humanity, and humans relate to the natural world, and uh, the modern world relates to the wisdom traditions of the past. All these things relate to each other, and once we see those relationships and focus on them rather than the separations, uh, actually our lives and the universe itself seems to become more meaningful.
3: Jeremy, the um, the other part of the the title, integrating science and traditional wisdom to find our place in the universe. Um, I, I, I want to talk about that that overlap of science and traditional wisdom because um, it's surprising how much traditional wisdom um, and and the answers that we've been living with throughout human history. Uh, in many cases, are being proven out by science.
1: It is. And actually, that is one of the big themes of this book, that there have been so many areas where <clears throat> a sort of old-fashioned mainstream science said, oh, traditional wisdom is a bunch of nonsense. And, and, and vice in versa. Decades, yes, that's a good point, that spiritual spirituality is often like dismissed science and said, oh, you're never going to find out anything of real importance through science, you know, just like jettison it, just give up on it. Um, and that's very true. And there's been a, a divide which, in fact, the the strange thing is, is that both um, many scientists and uh, people following spiritual traditions have supported this divide. Um, so there was actually um, a great evolutionary biologist called Stephen Jay Gold who famously said, um, you know, there's, what he said, two magisteria of knowledge, or like two different sort of domains, and they should be separate. And science should tell us about what is the the world is about, and religion should tell us about values, like how we should live in the world. And they don't belong together. They should be separate. And, of course, a lot of people in different religious traditions agree with that. But this is one of the things I'm trying to show in the book that actually they're not separate. And what modern science shows us, there's so many different areas where um, it shows that actually what those traditional wis- um, wisdom insights said was true. For example, Jeremy, oh, Jeremy oh, it, I have yeah. to put a comma
3: here because I have to take a break. So, Can you stick around for a few no minutes? No worries. Good. Absolutely. I, I, I want to talk about mm-hmm. this some more. My guest is Jeremy Lent, the author of The Web of Meaning integrating science and traditional wisdom to find our place in the universe. We're going to take a short break and we'll be back with
0: everybody's doing a brand new dance now.
3: Hi, this is Mark Farner and you're listening
5: to the Tom Sumner program.
0: Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show.
3: And welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation with the author of a new book called The Web of Meaning, Jeremy Lent, and he uh, joins me by phone. Jeremy, thanks for sticking around. Sorry to make you sit through all that. Welcome back.
1: Oh, it's great to listen, sir.
3: (laughs) Um, just before the break, we were talking a little bit about uh, this idea of integrating science and traditional wisdom, and And the belief by some that science was out to disprove traditional wisdom and uh, traditional wisdom was uh, distrusting of the intentions of science.
1: Right. Right, exactly. And then I was going to give you a a couple of examples. There's a fair number, but just a couple of ways in which what traditional wisdom always said that was discounted by science turns out to be true. Um, Well, yeah, and I don't mean to to
3: interrupt, but I I think Mm -hmm. of the things that we find out in astronomy that, you know, are just reconfirming things that were... um, Seen and and reported, hundreds, if not thousands, of years ago. Well, what's an example that comes to your mind in astronomy, Tom? Um, I, just the position of planets. Right, right, exactly, exactly. No, I think that. I that, mean that, that alone is amazing true. when you consider yes. they didn't have, you know, uh, uh, space rovers and you know, high-powered it telescopes and all that, <laughs> and they just laid in the desert yeah. and looked at the night sky and, and <laughs> figured out, right. you know, eventually that yeah. uh, the Earth rotated around the sun and that we were one of nine planets, or now eight and a half right.
1: planets. <laughs> eight and a half, exactly. It is amazing. But then, then if, if you look closer to home, like just on our, our Earth, you know, one of the things that um traditions around the world would say like indigenous traditions especially is that basically all living beings are our relatives and that all living beings and you know, have sentience you know have actually some something they can teach us and of course um, for centuries modern science scoffed at that you know what ridiculous and actually came up with this idea that actually living things are really just machines um, and we can figure out how they work, just like yeah, you know, just all the little pillars and strings that make them work, and that's that's all they are. And then in recent decades, it turns out that those indigenous insights were completely right. That actually, if you look, um, evolutionarily speaking, um, we share about half of our genes with a banana. <laughs> Believe it or not, I mean, I mean, we actually. And um, if you look at all the different things that make us um, sentient creatures, we, we we are. We, if you go back long enough, a, a few billion years, um, every single living entity on this earth, even the tiniest little bacteria in some pond somewhere, <clears throat> comes from the same ancestor that we come from, and um, and in fact share. Even the, the bacteria share about thirty plus percent of its genes with us. So amazingly, we are all connected in that way. And uh, what modern science shows is that actually all of these things have sentience. And trees actually have about 15 different senses, even way more than we can even imagine. And, 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 and what's interesting about that
3: are, are some of the yeah. ancient Eastern philosophies that were scoffed um, as as being sort of, woo-hoo, you know, we're, we're all one with the universe. And, right. And, and yet,
1: we are. We are. That's exactly right. And then this notion of um, humans being really part of a, of a shared, um, cooperative sense of identity with the rest of all humanity and the rest of life. And again, science said no, no, no. Um, humans are just basically selfish, rational, um, individuals maximizing for their own benefit. And <clears throat> then, of course, um, Richard Dawkins came along a few decades ago with his book, The Selfish Gene, which kind of took over a lot of mainstream thinking, saying basically the ways genes evolved is just through selfishness. And so um, we can expect that selfishness to be there in every living entity. But what biologists tell us now, the opposite is true. In fact, the biggest shifts in evolution from when life began came about through different species, different organisms working out how to cooperate better with each other. Evolution is really a story of increased cooperation, and humans, um, compared to other primates, what makes humans unique is that we learn to cooperate, that we have emotions that actually drive us to be part of a group, things like compassion and empathy and a sense of fairness. Those are things that humans evolved and millions of years ago that are part of what it is to be a human being.
3: How does that that notion of um, selfishness um, stack up alongside uh, natural selection?
1: Yes, and that's that's what's so so interesting. the 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 sort of mainstream story that we all kind of take for granted because we've heard it so many times is that what natural selection does is and. Um, it allows those entities um, with the genes that are the most competitive, they, the, whatever species it is, the individuals that are the most competitive and that are better at outcompeting the others are the ones that get selected. And that's why um, in, in each case, each species, anyone who's alive today is the result of this ruthless competition among their genes and among other elements in their species.
3: Yeah, only but the strong survive.
1: <clears throat> exactly, there's that sense, um, but there's another story, and it's not that <clears throat> the story takes the place of that first story, but the story adds, like it complements that, <clears throat> that first story, and it makes for a far more complex um, understanding, which is that oftentimes within groups, it's um, groups that, where people learn to work together out-compete groups that don't learn to work together, so in fact, <clears throat> that was true with humans when they found themselves um, pre-humans, primates, in the, in the savannah in a changed environment millions of years ago. It was dangerous. It was scary. It was changeable. And those groups that learned to work together, and actually, you know, some went out hunting. Some looked after the little ones um, back in the camp. They learned to um, hang around the fire together. They learned to cooperate. And those groups were the ones that were successful. And in some group where you had a couple of sort of big uh, He-men, um, you know, the sort of big man saying, no, no, you just listen to me, you do everything I say. Those groups didn't work out so well. And in fact, the, um, oftentimes the rest of the group would like gang up on that, um, on that kind of guy who was too big for his britches and, and actually bring him down. And that's what evolved in humans. So what we see with natural selection is that it's, it, there is some competition always. I'm not saying just uh, sort of throw that out of the mix, but there's also cooperation. And if the two together create this complex array, what I actually uh, call, it's like harmony. It's like what evolution does is it works out these, these things together to create something that is richer than just the parts.
3: Uh, You know, there's a a funny scene in a television show I was watching where the characters were facing an extinction event. Uh, A meteor was going to crash into the planet, and they had access to a bunker that they thought would allow them to survive, but there was limited space. And they were fighting over who should be included. And some of the women wanted the UPS guy that wears the tight shorts, <laughs> and, and there were a couple, of, couple of other, uh, you know, more more brainiac types, and and one looked to the other and said, "Well, you know, somebody's going to have to, you know, reinvent the phone," and um, <laughs> and and one looks at the other and says. Do you know how to invent a phone? <laughs> and they stood there scratching their heads going, I'm not sure I do. Um but but that's you know, that that it just it, it just kinda plays off your point that um bigger and stronger isn't necessarily the the dominant influence in, in what should survive.
1: That's right. That's right. And yet, um, our society has developed in such a way that it tells us that actually, you know, bigger, stronger, or we can sort of translate that in modern terms, like wealthier and more successful and higher status are what really matters. And um, a lot of uh, what I offer in this book is a way of looking at our lives, looking at the world um, that leads to a different set of values, recognizing that actually... Um, being more focused on community, being more focused on our relationships with others, and communities being more focused on their relationship with the rest of life, actually leads to much, much greater well-being. And this is not just wishful thinking. Um, Again, I'm integrating science and traditional wisdom. It's actually a ton of science actually has come to show, to prove that, and to show hard evidence for that.
3: Well, I'm... beginning to like the title of your book more and more as we talk. And I I didn't realize I was going to do this, Jeremy. Um, It it seems to have broken into three parts. We talked about the web of meaning, and we talked about integrating science and traditional wisdom. But then there's this third part, to find our place in the universe. Do we really have any idea of what our place in the universe is, or are we just (laughs) occupying the place we
1: happen to be? Well, <coughs> yeah, you're, you're asking the big question, aren't you, Tom? Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I, I didn't
3: realize I was going to do this by just, you know, parsing <laughs> the title into three segments, but it, it kind of fell into that. It, but it works, I think, for trying to get an idea of what you're yeah. trying to share with the book.
1: Right, right, sure. And this is a big question. And even though it may not be a question that people ask sort of every day of their lives, it's not like they necessarily wake up and sort of get ready for work and brush their teeth saying, hey, where do I belong in the universe? Um, It is a question that almost every human asks at some point in their lives. And and there's a deep question that oftentimes the answers to that question affects many of the ways in which we make sense of things in our daily lives well everybody course, is familiar with
3: the why am I here question and right and of course the other big question and where are my car keys but um, <laughs> <laughs> but exactly. but but that is is a universal thing you know that that why am I here what is my purpose what
1: it is, it put is. better what and is my place <laughs> in the universe and in traditional um, communities um, there, there was always a story you know about how humans are part of, of, uh, of the community part of life etc and then in the last few hundred years again with the rise of science there's been this kind of disconnect where people look there's this famous quote of a scientist called uh, Pascal who looked up at the at the stars in the sky in, that, somewhere in the 17th century, and he, and he said, You know, those dark black places between the stars, and I look up at the sky, they terrify me. And it's a sense of existential dread like, oh, this universe is so bleak, so vast, so expansive, and we humans are so tiny within it. And all that, <clears throat> there, there's a, a kind of a true, you know, factual elements to all of that. And this is the thing about finding our place in the, in the universe. So some people go, Okay. Um, it's all meaningless, we just kind of do what we do and try to fill in those black spaces and try not to think about them too much. Other people say, well, let's believe in a God and then I feel better because I know God's there and so I can just kind of um, pray to God and everything will be okay. But what I'm offering is something um, a little different from that. Actually, what modern science begins to show us is that this is actually a universe where the connections between things actually are more important than the things themselves. And when you begin to recognize that, and you begin to recognize that as humans, we're just kind of part of this flow of life that's been going on for billions of years. And we live in a universe that actually led to the creation of life, and who knows how much life in other places in, this, in, in, in these distant stars that we look up in the sky. But we begin to recognize that if we focus on those connections, rather than on the separations, our place in the universe gets to be much more feeling like we're at home here. Once we begin to start looking at the connections, I um, think my very identity is part of connecting with other people around and this kind of flow of life of which I'm part. Even the, the fear of death becomes a little less Terrifying, basically, because I get to realize that actually the life within me keeps going, and the, the ways in which I have impact on others those co- becomes almost my spirit, and that stays alive even after I'm gone. And it's a different kind of feeling that enables us ultimately to feel at home in the universe rather than alien to it.
3: And that's, you know, a big part of, of traditional wisdom was coming to terms with with death and, and gravitating to um, faith-based uh, explanations that make it sound like our, our sense of, of self is, is bigger than the the vessel that carries us through this life and that somehow will live beyond that and right. that, and that is uh, uh, one of the big questions is there life after death and where is science on that
1: <coughs> well <coughs> you know there's this wonderful sense that if you think of your life as actually extending beyond this particular physical flesh and blood organism that we identify with, then we can see our own death as actually just being one little kind of story in this whole sort of flow of life. Like one, one way of thinking about it is... Um, a lot of um, this book looks at what's called systems thinking or complexity science, which is the science of looking at the way things connect. And one way that they actually look at um, an individual life itself is imagine like a river, um, like a fast-flowing river. And um, while all the different parts of that, and um, like all the different water molecules come and go from one moment to the next, but the little eddies, Um, uh, that you see as the water hits rocks or whatever, they actually become more stable. So it's just imagine looking at a little eddy of water in the river, and every moment, the actual water that makes up that eddy is different from what it was before, but the eddy remains stable. And so you can actually even think of our own lives a little bit like that, that our own, the molecules in our bodies, and even like the same molecules I have in my body now are totally different from the ones we in my body decades ago, but there's still me. there's this kind of stability. And similarly, even when my own body dies, the ways in which I have had connections with the world, the ways in which I've related to others around me, live on after that. So under this kind of way of thinking, we don't necessarily try to think about life after death in the traditional way of saying, well, I've got some sort of soul." that's like this kind of diamond that's untouched, and my body dies, but that soul and some sort of essence remains the same. But we think about it more in terms of um, the life that we, the, the things we put out into the world are part of who we are. Like we all, like imagine somebody like Martin Luther King Jr., um, you know, who <clears throat> was you know, assassinated decades ago, and yet the qualities that he embodied the actual ways, his voice, the very timbre of what he said, the very um, the feeling tone of who he was, exists in millions and millions of us right now, that feeling tone. So, in that sense, um, Martin Luther King Jr. is alive and um, actually having an impact on, on the world in ways that um, are so incredibly important that, uh, you know, if presumably if he um, could have known when he was alive, that kind of impact. It would have made him. Uh, I'm, I would expect feel very differently about um, <coughs> about the work he was doing, about the magnitude of it.
3: You've got me rethinking my epitaph. <laughs> I, I, Tell me about I, it. I, I, I was I, jokingly, my my epitaph my epitaph was to be, um, it wasn't much of a living, but it was a hell of a life. But, <laughs> but I'm thinking now, maybe it should be, what's next.
1: <laughs> i love it i love it it's
3: it's always so much uh fun to talk with you jeremy and um you were here when you uh came out with the book which is now uh, an award-winning book uh the patterning instinct now the book is the web of meaning that we've been talking about integrating science and traditional wisdom to find our place in the universe so you found the patterns. You found the web of meaning. Um, what, what, what are you looking for next, Jeremy? What's, what's the next big thing for Jeremy Lent?
1: <coughs> well, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked me that because it's really um, the next big thing, I think, is one of the most exciting possibilities for us as a society going forward. Um, and it actually... And um, the next thing I'm working on is where this current book, The Web of Meaning, leaves off. Because at the end of this book, The Web of Meaning, and the last chapter looks at the way our society has been working and our growth-oriented economics have been working to actually basically unravel the Web of Meaning, to um, lead p- to potential collapse, leading to all kinds of, of um, breakdowns of what we're used to. And it looks at the underpinnings of our society itself, this civilization that is based on wealth accumulation. And it begins to ask this question, what would it look like if instead we could actually uh, essentially change the operating system of civilization? What would it look like if we could actually build a civilization that was based on the principles of life itself that have enabled ecologies, ecosystems to be healthy for millions and millions of years? And a lot of people are calling this nowadays an ecological civilization. And it would look like a civilization we would all want to be part of, which was one that actually encouraged well being, actually encouraged a sense of justice, actually encouraged a sense of symbiosis between humans and the living earth. And so the next book that I plan to write is actually going to be on this um, vision and pathways toward an ecological civilization, a place. Of potential future flourishing for all of humanity on a healthy earth, and that might seem like just some sort of ideal far away from our current reality. But the reality is is unless we make these changes to something like this right now, um, <clears throat> the, we're not going to be looking at uh, a long-term future for a civilization, you know looking into the next century or so.
3: Jeremy, I, I was I was just uh, for some reason when you were talking about the accumulation of wealth, I was thinking of very very early development of civilization when you know the uh, when survival was job one and and it led to the creation of tools and and things were collected there were, there there was a certain um, collection of, of objects but it was all about being able to do the work that was necessary to survive and thrive and, and live.
1: Yes. And also interestingly, and um, it was about actually doing stuff, um, to, um, thrive in community. And <clears throat> what it has been, um, what's so fascinating is that actually when people have studied, um, how, um, nomadic hunter-gatherer tribes live, which is basically how all of humans live for like 95% of our history. It turns out that they live quite easily. Um, and <clears throat> There's a um, sense that we sort of have, uh, again, from our um, sort of mainstream worldview that, and um, yeah, back in those days, it was like this kind of scrabble existence. People barely survived from one day to the next or one year to the next. The opposite is true. actually. And people who live these nomadic hunter-gatherer lifestyles have tons of leisure time. They spend uh, um, more time than almost any of us are used to actually um, singing together, gathering around the fire, um, doing things together, actually being in community, enjoying each other as community. And
3: uh, in a way, it's like
1: rediscovering that.
3: I hate, to, I hate to interrupt again, but I have another break coming up. Uh, <laughs> can you stick around and, and we'll wrap this up? Absolutely, Tom. All right. My guest is Jeremy Lent, the author of The Web of Meaning, Integrating Science and Traditional Wisdom to Find Our Place in the Universe. And uh, we'll, we'll have a little more with Jeremy right after this. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More with my uh, guest, Jeremy Lent, the author of The Web of Meaning, Integrating Science and Traditional Wisdom to Find Our Place in the Universe. And uh, thankfully for us this past hour, Jeremy's Place in the Universe has been right here with us by phone. Jeremy, welcome back.
1: Uh, I'm so happy. To, it's been such, such a pleasure having this conversation, Tom. Thank you.
3: Um, now, we've, we've talked about uh, some of the elements of the book and, and some of the things that you bring forward in the book. When did or does the
1: book uh, officially
3: <coughs> drop, as they say?
1: Um, well, it's actually going to be published a little bit earlier in the U.K. Um, in just a week or two, and here in the U.S., the publication date is July 13th, but here's a little tip for people. If you go to the website of the publisher, New Society Publishers is, is their name, and, and you buy the book there, they'll actually send it to you uh, before the official publication date, even in just a couple of weeks from now. So, and, and, and they're also offering a really good discount, just like you might get on Amazon. So you go to New Society Publishers website, Buy the book there, and you'll get it um, before you know it.
3: And um, mm. you now we've kind of explored the the contents of the book. But what what are
1: you hoping readers will get out of it? Mm, yeah, I, I've been thinking a lot about that. I was as I was writing it, and as I <clears throat> as it was coming out to press. And what I really hope is that people who are curious about <clears throat> their place in the universe people who feel there's something that's not quite right about the way the world works, about the way our society um, is so unfair, about these kind of crises that our society keeps like um, reeling into from all time, from time. People who aren't quite satisfied by the answers they've been told. I'm hoping that they'll read this book and begin to piece it together in a way that they might not have thought about before that by the end of reading this book, the people will say, wow, my mind is blown. I'm actually seeing things in a way that I hadn't thought about ever in my life, and it's a way that both makes sense to me and makes me feel better about who I am as a person and and what I'm doing in this world.
3: Well, I, I wanna commend you for continuing the work on the book and getting it finished up during the pandemic. You'd be surprised, Jeremy, at the number of very successful writers uh uh, best sellers in some cases. Um, who I've asked, you know, if they were productive during the pandemic, and and you'd be surprised at the number of them who said, nah, "I was kind of shell shocked. I, you know, I, I, I was kind of like a, a deer in the headlights. I, I really didn't do as much as I maybe should have with the time I had."
1: Yeah. Well, you know, the thing is, of course it's something that has affected people in, in profound ways. And many people have had dear ones, uh, even if they haven't been affected themselves, dear ones who have been very sick or lost people. Sure. And so I just think that this is a moment, you know, this uh, pandemic has been a moment for us to really understand this sense of connectedness that i'm talking about in a way the pandemic and people's response to it have heightened these very issues i'm talking about here you know where we recognize our connectedness with each other where we recognize that and you know we have responsibilities to others around us so yeah it's it's been it's been such a difficult journey for so many people
3: jeremy you mentioned the website for the book but um do you have a website where listeners can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future?
1: Yeah, I do. Thanks for asking, Tom. And it's real simple. Just go to um, www.jeremylent.com, and that's all one word. So J-E-R-E-M-Y-L-E-N-T, um, and you'll see it right there. And actually, you'll see a lot of um, uh stuff talking about the book, The Web of Meaning, and it's even, you can even for free uh, download the introduction, so you can just get a taste of it yourself uh, right there on the website.
3: Well, excellent. And, and, Jeremy, it was great talking with you again. I appreciate you sharing your wisdom with uh, me and the listeners um, this morning and, and in your books. Um, I hope you'll come back when you get, uh, when you get the next one ready. Uh,
1: Well, I would just so look forward to it, Tom. It's been just a great pleasure talking with you, and thank you so much for this wonderful uh,
3: show that you do. Well, thanks, Jeremy, and uh, keep up the good work. You too. Take care, Tom. Thank you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Once again, that was uh, Jeremy Lent, um, called one of the uh, great thinkers of our time. He uh, was on the show back when he came out with his book, The Patterning Instinct. And now we're talking about his new book, which is about to be released, The Web of Meaning, Integrating Science, and Traditional Wisdom to Find Our Place in the Universe. And we'll have uh, more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead.
0: Won't you come over, won't you stop by, won't you come over, baby, and hold me, I'm lonely, that's why, hey baby, what you up to, can you come out and play? Why don't you come over, baby, and hold me? I'm lonely, that's why. Why don't you come see me? Let me clarify. Why don't you come over, baby, and hold me? I'm lonely, that's why. Good deed. If you help me, I'll help you. And this is how we proceed. Why don't you come over? Why don't you stop by? Why don't you come over? Why don't you come over? Why don't you stop by? Why don't you come over, baby? And hold me, I'm lonely, that's why. Why don't you come see me? Let me clarify. Why don't you come over, baby? And hold me, I'm lonely, that's why. Why don't you come over? Why don't you stop by? Why don't you come over, baby, and you know hold I'm lonely, that's why. Why don't you come see me, baby? Why don't you come over? Why don't you stop on my baby?
6: bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. And if we don't act quick and social distance, it will mire us in a stretch of quarantine that lasts until July. are super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. And if you got a better cough in your arm, and if you got a better... <coughs> now, back in 1918, influenza had its run. But half the docks were busy overseas with World War One. Today we have mass media and scientists to say, if you don't want this virus, well then stay six feet away. Super damn important that we practice isolation because we're asymptomatic while it's an incubation will overwhelm our hospitals if there's not mitigation. It's super damn important that we practice isolation if we don't do it then we're all gonna die If we don't do it then we're all gonna die and So I hope at last you'll take this lesson here to heart Cause it's already scary and we're only at the start If you get bored just think of the immunocompromised Who can't go much of anywhere unless it's sterilised Oh super bad, transmittable contagious awful virus If we don't act quick and social distance it will mire us In a stretch of quarantine the lesson to July a superman Super bad, transmittable, super bad, transmittable super Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. Super bad, transmittable. Hi, I'm Alexander Zodjian. Don't touch that dial.
5: You're listening to Tom Sumner.